okay. We'll just wait for the, the car to drive off there. There, it's gone. Welcome to Brooklands, um, and welcome to tonight's event. Uh, you will have seen Homer Simpson there. If you followed his instructions, you won't be able to get out of that door because it's locked because they haven't quite finished those stairs yet, even though they've been doing them for months. Um, so the fire exit is the main one at the back there. If the, if the bells do go off, it won't be a drill. So uh, that is the exit to take. Um, tonight's event um, is about a, a fairly a little-known person, I guess, in the annals of history at Brooklands. Um, we don't see too much on the medical side of Brooklands uh, written about at all. But tonight, uh, we're going to look at uh, Dr. Gardner, the amazing Dr. Gardner, in fact. And Brooklands member Steve McCarthy is going to come forward now from the back and make an entrance. And he's going to tell us all about the amazing Dr. Gardner. Well done, Steve. Good luck. Everybody hear me? Yeah, mic's on. Good, good. Right. So, yes, I'm just a local Weybridge person. Uh, I'll just give you a little bit of background um, as to why I'm here doing this. Um, I have um, another talk which is called Brooklyn's Through the Ages, which um, is about a thousand years worth of history leading up to this track and everything. And um, when I was doing that, I, I came across this guy, Eric Gardner, all sorts of references to him. Um, and um, shortly after I produced this talk, uh, the Elbridge Museum, which used to be just in Weybridge, 10 minutes from my house, just stroll down there anytime I wanted, um, they said that there was a thing called the Elmbridge 100, which is uh, it's a website with biographies of the 100 most significant people who've lived in Elmbridge. And one of them was Eric Gardner, and they had all of two little tiny sentences about him. And they were asking for volunteers to uh, write a biography. So I thought, well, I've come across this bloke a bit. So anyway, I, I wrote a biography, which is on, which is on there, and you can read it. And um, during my research of it, I also um, I came across uh, on a genealog genealogical site, Genie, uh, somebody in Greece who uh, claimed that I think it was his great-grandfather was Eric Gardner. And I left a message there, and um, some months went by, and suddenly I got an email from this um, uh, Greek lady <laughs> who was uh, a granddaughter of Eric Gardner. And she then put me on to two other granddaughters of Eric Gardner who uh, live in the UK. And they provided um, various things to me. In particular, uh, that, for instance, that picture is the, was the only known picture of the man anywhere. But I've got some pictures of him from these granddaughters. And also, I got a biography which one of them had typed up, which was her father's <coughs> biography uh, about his father, Eric. So and, uh, it just sort of turned into, I, I, you know, I thought, oh, I could make a talk about this. So this is the third time I've done it, um, but this is a special version for Brooklands 
members because uh, I was very grateful for Andrew Lewis from muse the museum. Uh, got out a load of archive material a few weeks ago, so I was able to come in here and fill in a few of the gaps in my knowledge. So, anyway, I'm going to cover all that stuff up there, basically. There's an awful lot of it, and um, uh, I, I hope that you'll find it interesting. So, but what, what sort of guy was he? Because I, I, I thought I'd start with this. I'd start with his obituary, because uh, I think it's quite significant what it says down there. I, can everybody read that? You can, um, because you know he had colour. It says he 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 had such an interest in things. It's you know, uh, and 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 at the time, I mean, this is just one of the things he did. But in a ten-year period, he became a, an eminent forensic pathologist, uh, which is not how he started his career at all. But that's how he finished it. So. Um, so he, uh, he, he didn't come from around here. Um, how he ended up in Weybridge is not very clear, um, but um, he was born in Hackney. He was brought up in Essex. The family regard Coggeshall in Essex as where they all came from. Uh, he, uh, he went to Cambridge. He studied medicine at Cambridge. And um, uh, one of the things that his uh, son wrote was that he was a prominent oarsman and stroked his first May boat. Well, I still haven't worked out exactly what stroking a May boat is, but I presume he was a pretty significant um, rower. Um, and here's a picture of him when he was young. So, um, quite earnest looking young chap, but of course nobody ever smiled in these, uh, you know, it wasn't a done thing smiling in photographs or anything, was it? So there's a picture of him when he was doing his medical training, because after Cambridge University, he went uh, to the London Hospital, and uh, he uh, learnt a lot more about surgery and pathology in particular, in terms of sort of specialisms. Although, of course, back in the day, there was no such, you know, there weren't surgical specialities as such. You know, there were, you know, I mean, these days, the medical profession is divided up into a whole series of sub-professions, if you like. And he got his first job, uh, presumably after he qualified in 1904, uh, and he worked at the Great Ormond Street Hospital. And there's a picture, of, <laughs> and it's Eric by the fireplace, if you can, uh, I think it's him there, so. And you can see all the little small cots for uh, children. So, um, when he was 29 in 1906, he came to Weybridge, and I think almost certainly he came to Weybridge, A, because he was probably engaged to be married, and secondly, because he probably decided he didn't want to work in a London hospital. And he, he joined a practice, uh, if, in today's terminology, and I refer to it just as a GP practice. He, 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 he joined a practice um, of a doctor who was probably say, 10 years off retirement and wanted a younger partner. You know. So he actually got married uh, the next year, uh, in 1907, and they had three children. So he had, the first son was John Soans, born in 1908. Um, the second son, called George, who was always known in the family as Pickles, and he was a pilot, and unfortunately he got injured uh, uh, Alamein in North Africa, and his remains were buried in Bari, in uh, the heel of Italy. 
And then the third son was, in fact, uh, it was James, always known as Jim, who um, was an, ended up being an army major. And I, I haven't worked out if there's any connection, but he'd, he'd never, after the war, never lived in England. And he lived in Italy, and he married a Greek lady. And uh, he, was, he used to run Procter & Gamble in Italy, apparently. So uh, there's a lovely picture of the... Um, Eric and Dora's wedding, and um, it's, it's just such a lovely picture. <laughs> but and there's a picture of his three sons. Now that's probably in the 1920s, um, and John had two daughters, uh, who are the granddaughters. Uh, well, those two granddaughters. Then Jim had. Uh, and I'm not sure whether that's too... I don't, I don't know what Alexa is, but the ones I've highlighted there are the ones I've been in contact with, and this, it was this Marina Georgiopoulos who uh, contacted me after via this genealogical site and then put me on to the others. Um, so, anybody who knows Weybridge well um, probably knows where they used to live. I'm not sure exactly when they moved into it, but Portmore House uh, is the one on the right there. Oops, and I've, I've gone on already, but the, um, that's Kirchhoff's estate agents today. And, of course, that is one of the most historic houses in Weybridge. And uh, he lived there, or the family lived there, right, probably only moved out after his wife eventually died in 1955. So, um, now, the incredible thing about this guy, and, I'll do, you know, I'm, I'm just going to kind of... It's, it's like unwrapping, a, you know... Russian doll or something, taking the... I mean, he'd only, he only arrived there in 1906. We'll, we'll, we'll save for a bit the, the Brooklyn side of it, but um, within three years, he was the mayor. I mean, you know, you can't... You, you know, he was 32. Uh, he, and he was, but he was a councillor well before that. So as soon as he got here, somebody must have thought, he's an interesting bloke, we'll get him to stand as a councillor. Um, and he was eventually chairman of the council, and uh, he didn't retire as a councillor until 1919. And you can see on there, I mean, that's just an extract uh, on there of, you know, some council notes and things when he was uh, the chairman. And um, the, the thing he was almost certainly most well known about around here was that he, w when he was the mayor in 1909, he was effectively the founder of Weybridge Museum. And um, as there's a bit of his, that, that, that's a bit off the website of, in fact, Elmbridge Museum because that Weybridge Museum turned into Elmbridge Museum in 1991. And um, the, um, at the time, that's the council offices there. And if, if you know Weybridge well, well that's that West Bank and that's looking up Baker Street. So, uh, and that's today, of course, is Lloyd's Bank. But <laughs> and uh, the museum was just one room there. Same as the library, I think, was just one room in the council office. So, um, he obviously wasn't very busy. Um, you know, he was doctor. There's quite a few doctors, amazingly, in Weybridge. Um, even though it was a village, you have to think about it like this, it was just a village. Um, it only had a few thousand residents, but uh, anyway, he um, apparently in 190, well, this it says from 1907, 
um, that the, there'd always been two rowing clubs in Weybridge, and um, one of them had, uh, had you know, lain dormant for a bit. And the one rowing club was for um, what you might call the middle classes, and <laughs> there's another one for the lower classes, which was the Weybridge Rowing Club. And they were looking to, you know, it says there for tradesmen and uh, watermen. And they wanted, they put out a plea to get some people who knew something about how to row properly. <laughs> and he obviously put his hand up and uh, he was made a coach of their senior members team. And uh, they were very successful. He went, and then he went on to uh, be the captain of the club and eventually the president in, during this First World War. And that's a, a picture looking from um, the uh, Thames Street where, uh, you know, where the minnow used to be, uh, used to, is, is now and that, looking towards Shepperton Lock. Um, so um, as a medical person, um, he joined the practice of this Dr. Chapel. So, and uh, much to my amazement, I only found out last year from an old directory that um, it's literally just, a, it was just in this place in Heath Road, literally almost across the road from where I live actually. Um, and obviously like many things, uh, the, when World War One came along, it disrupted um, many things like medical practices and things. And when he came back after World War One, he had to uh, restart it. He, I think he took over the same practice and had to restart it. And then in 1922, um, him and maybe others in the practice uh, hired Dr. Sam Beer. And anybody who's local as well might well know the name Sam Beer. Um, and we'll come on to him in a bit. Um, and then he uh, decided eventually in uh, 1936 to retire as a GP. Um, and he was still then in a practice with Dr. Beer and uh, another doctor called Whitehouse, Whitehurst, who also uh, we'll mention a bit later as well. So um, some of the things that his son wrote about him in his biography was the fact that um, he, he had all this, obviously, expertise from uh, accidents at Brooklands, um, in, in, in saving damaged limbs. And what, what, what you've got to think of, about is that um, how did he get involved with Brooklands? And it's not 100% clear, but it seems to me almost inevitably that um, you suddenly got this racetrack built in just on the edge of this village and the, there was a number of doctors here. He was probably the youngest one and at some stage, pretty soon, they realised there was quite a few injuries. And he was probably the one down in the cottage hospital, which we'll come on to, uh, who was kind of up for dealing with these sort of casualties. And, and you've got to see the, the context is that um, he must have been seeing trauma injuries. What, I mean, that's what people call them these days. They wouldn't have called it trauma injuries then but they're trauma injuries that today um, you, a good percentage of them would go straight to St. George's Hospital in Tooting these days. They wouldn't even go to St. Peter's. Uh, and I, I say that because I used to be a governor for nine years of Ashford and St. Peter's Hospitals. And um, 
because there is nobody in Surrey does brain surgery. There's no neurosurgeons in Surrey. Anybody who's got any head injury, straight to St. George's. Anybody who's got injury to more than one limb, straight to St. George's these days. Uh, and that's because you've got a massive team of all specialities. And, and some of the couple of the crashes I'll talk about. Um, I mean, these days, you'd have orthopedic surgeons, you'd have vascular surgeons, and you could have cosmetic surgeons working to repair damaged limbs, almost certainly. And what he started doing was just working in a hospital down the road, a cottage hospital, which didn't even have an operating theatre. <laughs> and he was saving people. I mean, it's quite incredible. And you, 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 it's difficult to kind of underestimate, you know, overdo that, how, how complicated it must have been. And one of his, um, when I was talking to one of his granddaughters, she, I mean, she remembers going into Portmore House as a young girl and saying, oh, grand, grandfather, he had this big wooden operating table in the house. Now, I can't quite work that one out myself, because I'm, I'm pretty certain he wasn't operating in the house. But, um, and, and at that time, he would have been a pathologist, actually, so he was quite used to dissecting bodies. But, um, but the, anyway, that's what she told me. But his son also said, I mean, he, he wasn't just doing this. He was, you know, a regular doctor anyway. And uh, um, he was very well known as a gynecologist stroke obstetrician. Um, and that he, he was very upset um, that he, once when he lost a baby, that was the first one he'd ever had in, lost a baby in 30 years. Now, um, that would have been very, very unusual. And in 1913, in terms of what was happening at the Cottage Hospital, um, which at the time had about, well, it probably had less than 14 beds. It, um, as I say, it didn't have an operating room, but there were five doctors who were registered who worked out of the hospital, if you like. You know. uh, and then later on, we'll talk about, there was a new hospital built in 1927-28, and uh, he was also, this is quite interesting, he was, he was um, chairman of the um, sanitary committee and I think this is actually not necessarily because he's a doctor, it was because he was a counsellor and, um, uh, and he was maybe a natural. But, but that document there, and you can find it online, is absolutely incredible because the local council had responsibility for health. And um, they had to do, by law, produce annual reports. And there is so much amazing detail in these documents about what happened. I mean, it tells you how many births, how many illegitimate births. It tells you all about uh, sanitary uh, residents with unsanitary housing and all this kind of stuff. And it, it gives you all the statistics about every single communicable disease that, that was there. Because the, the big thing about medicine, really, it wasn't all about operating and things like that. Most of it was about fighting, um, you know, some of the dreadful diseases which eventually we got vac vaccines for and, and, and wiped them out. So, um, quite, quite interesting stuff. I mean, amazing things you learn about how many farms there were in Weybridge and how many cows because they all had to be inspected in terms of the risk of from tuberculosis and things. So, um, because of his obviously inquisitive mind and that, he was, he was, a, bit, he was a bit surprised, apparently, when he came here. 
to work as a doctor um, to find that there was all this local sort of folk medicine and folklore around. And um, he wrote some of this up and, and somebody, um, it must have been handwritten notes, but somebody typed it all up and eventually got into some, I think there's some Surrey book of it. Um, but he, he came across the, these amazing things like um, a woman coming to him, telling, telling him that she'd done the bridges um, because, you know, she, her, her little baby was suffering from what he diagnosed as whooping cough. And I, I don't believe they had any cure for it. And doing the bridges, apparently, was that you took the baby and you probably in a pram, and you walked all the way to Chertsey. You went over Chertsey Bridge. You walked all the way then to Shepperton, to Walton Bridge, and then you walked all the way back to Weybridge. And it was supposed to have cured the child. And she was quite disgusted that he didn't have any better thing to offer. Um, and then another woman came and told him that, say, if you skinned and fried a mouse and gave it to the child to eat, that would cure it as well. But, so um, you, you, you can imagine, um, it's only a hundred odd years ago, but there was some quite interesting things there. Um, I, I won't bother and cover the other ones, but... But um, because of his interest in history, and we'll come and cover, uh, we'll cover archaeology later, but um, he was always obviously writing things, and he must have been depositing them in the, uh, the museum. Because in 1999, the manager of the museum wrote a book called Weybridge Past, and it's absolutely littered with references to Eric Gardner said this, and Eric Gardner did this. And... Um, so, a whole series of things up there, um, which you can see. But um, one of the, the things down the bottom there, it says when there was a fire on Weybridge Heath, um, it uncovered these places where there'd been, um, he uh, worked out, there'd been iron workings. Now, th th this, this is absolutely kind of astonishing for those of us who live here, that um, you might have known that like in the, the, the Weald and that, um, they made a lot of charcoal and stuff, historically. And, uh, and of course, a lot, a lot of that originally was for smelting iron, because that was the Iron Age. And there was iron ore literally in the ground all over the place. And um, so what you can see there... Oh, sorry, wrong, wrong one. Uh, what you can see here, you know, these undulations, and uh, this, this is just up, at the, almost certainly just up the station on the right. So it's, it's all, of course, covered in trees and stuff now. But um, th th that's almost certainly iron workings. And um, I'll come on and cover where he then uh, worked out where they did a lot of the smelting. So, but before that, we'll go on to the Lock Kings and we'll go into some of the... Um, uh, the Brooklyn's connections and things. Now, uh, I'm sure most of you know who Hugh and Ethel Lock King are. They're the people who, him in particular, he uh, owned uh, a huge amount of land. He inherited it from his father. It was all largely put together by his grandfather. Uh, but if you drove up from Byfleet, up what is now Brooklyn's Road, um, and into Weybridge, what I generally say is he owned everything on the left-hand side of the road, virtually, apart from the bits of the heath. 
and, uh, and you went into Weybridge and he owned all of Portmore Park, everything going up to the way and everything. And of course, he, he sold it off over the years, um, most of it for building development. Um, and um, we won't go into the history of the uh, track and that, but somehow or other, Eric Gardner got very close to them very quickly. And, and I suspect it must have been because he was developing this reputation. He was the guy, he was the doctor who was dealing with uh, a lot of these accident victims. And um, uh, they got to know him. And, and of course, we'll come on and t talk about him as the medical officer. Um, but he must have known them that well because his granddaughter told me that her father, John Soane's gardener, Ethel was his godmother. Well, he, he, he was only born in 1908. Eric Gardner only arrived here in 1906, so <laughs> must have got to know them incredibly well. And um, I'm pretty certain Eric certainly was the, at least Hugh's personal physician. Uh, and it's very clear um, it was reported when Hewlock King died in 1926 that, you know, Dr. Gardner was present as his doctor. Um, so uh, he had clearly very, very strong connections with the, the Lock Kings. And I always thought, that in fact, that he became the medical director because of them, but I, I, that's a bit unclear, actually. So um, some of the things that um, he was dealing with in prior to the World War I in, in relation to Brooklands, uh, obviously I've talked about the injuries and things, um, and he was eventually made the uh, medical officer, and I'll cover later the distinction between, you know, the medical officer, what they did, and um, what, what you do down in the hospital. But he, he was obviously seeing all these accidents and that. But he, he um, one of the things his son said is that after the World War I, he was given the absolute power to stop any driver racing. And uh, I, I imagine that might be something which is current these days, but he, he was obviously perceived as somebody who could really judge people. And, um, uh, you know, and, and I, I imagine that at race meetings, if stewards or anything thought, you know, somebody was drunk or, you know, not quite there or, you know, had had a bit of a, an accident and was a bit woozy or something, you know, he, he had the right to just stop, stop them completely uh, taking part anymore. But the big thing uh, we're working up to is, is head injuries and concussion because this was the big thing that he, he was seeing. And of course, there were no helmets worn then. And, um, but also, he came across, of course, flying accidents, um, because somebody will tell me when flying started. Was it 1909? But uh, you know, people started uh, falling to the ground uh, in aeroplanes. But, um, but when he was... Um, uh, he must have also been on the site when they were literally building in 1907 because he discovered Roman coins by the side of the railway strait and uh, gave them to the British Museum. So um, th this bit is kind of new because I'm grateful to Andrew Lewis, the museum, who, who uh, 
came, uh, who let me in and see some of the archives. And we had to comb through a lot of things to try and understand what was a medical officer, um, because it wasn't really very obvious to a lot of people, but it's very clear from all the programs that the medical officer was a track official and um, a, who was, uh, a, if you like, appointed by the race operator. And many, there's many of you here who know a lot more about how racing took place at Brooklands. But um, as soon as Brooklands was formed, a, a club, the Brooklands Automobile, Automobile Racing Club was formed, and they operated largely the racing on behalf of Brooklands Weybridge Limited, which was the company that the Lock Kings owned. Uh, and obviously they got the, a lot of the proceeds, presumably, in terms of the entry money and all that. Uh, but there were other race operators as well. So there's a whole series of clubs. Um, and if, when you look at all the programs, they all say who the, um, the medical officer was. So there's British Motorcycle Racing Club, the Cycle Car Club, which eventually became the Junior Car Club. And then there was a British Racing Drivers Club. And uh, his name features as medical officer on, on all of them, basically. Um, and I think the, you know, the reality is that uh, the medical officer was the person who had to be there and pass judgment on, on things. But of course, normally, it wouldn't be the doctor who would then go on and treat people. But in his case, he was the doctor who was doing most of the treatment of, of the people because they were just taken down to the cottage hospital. But there was, um, what we discovered is that there were, in fact, a number of medical officers first one we could find was in 1909, and then there was a guy who did it for three years, and then it was Gardner, and he uh, did it until 1936, so he was by far the longest serving. And then eventually his colleague, when he did retire from general practice, he decided obviously not to be the medical officer here anymore, and uh, his, his colleague in his practice took over, Dr. Whitehurst. But he personally was a member of, he's listed there as a member of the... Uh, uh, BARC, right from 1911, right through to the demise of, of the track. And with the Junior Car Club, he's listed as the chief medical officer, and I think the thinking was there that they operated a lot of long-distance races, like 200-mile races. And um, he would have had, and we'll come on to it, but people like Sam Beer would come along on race days as well and uh, help out. And, and one of the things should say is that um, it wasn't just race days, it wasn't just Saturdays. There was people using the track during the week because the whole, one of the whole things about Brooklands was it was about giving manufacturers and people a place to uh, try out their machines and test them. And uh, so there were plenty of people coming off motorbikes during the middle of the week, <laughs> not just on, on race days. But uh, the first thing you, you find out, sort of written about, um, were about flying accidents. So, um, May 1912, uh, Flight Magazine reported about this accident of a Flanders, Flanders F3 monoplane, where the, uh, the pilot and the passenger were killed. And um, they reported that Dr. Gardner gave this medical report because there was an inquest held in Weybridge, and uh, it was him who reported. And you can read up there 
Uh, in fact, I'm not sure that bit was from, that might have been a, from a national newspaper, that, all that bit in red, but um, it must have been uh, at some sort of event or it must have been at the weekend because there were 200 people, they reckon, there who saw the crash. And what was very significant about this, it's not connected to Gardner, but this is the very first air accident that was investigated. And it's the start of um, air accident investigations in the whole world. And that was all because three months before, the Royal Aero Club had set up this committee to look at things. Um, so they, you know, it became routine. And of course, as we all know, any any aircraft crashes, there's an investigation these days. Um, so that's the plane. It's quite an interesting looking uh, plane, I thought, that, for 1909. 19, no, sorry, 1912. Um, and uh, th th apparently those are pictures of the actual plane itself. And then the next year, 1913, flight wrote up another one an, an, about another accident where the pilot was injured and his passenger was killed and they were taken to Weybridge Hospital. And you might be able to read there that the, uh, when they wrote this, the pilot was still in a uh, critical condition in Weybridge. And, um, and what I thought was significant here in terms of the lead up to things is this thing here saying that the, the cause, uh, Gardner said the cause of death was a fractured skull and he was asked about whether um, if they had worn helmets whether it would have um, prevented the injuries and uh, he basically said no it wouldn't. So uh, there again this is just showing us that you know people uh, would very often die because of head injuries basically. So um, one of the things that we, we got out of the archive was, um, uh, this is a September 1924 Brooklyn's Gazette, which I assume is the kind of magazine that Brooklyn's members got. Somebody might confirm that. Uh, which mentions that three or four years before the war, a number of auto cycle union officials headed by Dr. Gardner started investigating head injuries. And, um, uh, and, and safeguarding them. And so, um, that, that, that's the first kind of written reference there is to uh, anything about what turned out to be helmets. And of course the Autocycle Union was the national body responsible for all motorcycle racing and still is today, I think. Um, so uh, most of these motorcycle riders at Brooklands, um, yeah, here, here's one, you know, and he's, he's got his, uh, his nice leather helmet here. Um, and of course it didn't really do anything at all if you came off the bike. And what Gardner realized is that, um, and, and this could only have been through actually seeing multiple uh, instances of this, is that um, the, the rider coming off would follow a trajectory, which is a parabolic curve basically, and would hit the track and the worst thing that could possibly happen is, A, you, you could smash your head so badly, obviously it crushed the skull and things. Um, but if that didn't happen, if there was in any way the head started moving at a different velocity than the body, that almost certainly meant the head would go back and break the neck. And that means total paralysis or death. And he had seen um, a lot of these um, motorcycle riders coming into his hospital um, with concussion 
by hit, from hitting the head. And they stayed in, in the cottage hospital for weeks and some of them months. And actually quite a lot of them recovered as long as they didn't have literal in, physical injuries to the brain. Um, and quite interestingly, we could only find that there was ever three motorcycle fatalities at, uh, at Brooklands in all those years it operated. Um, so, um, the, you know, uh, you know I, I said, you know, I kind of tried to give the impression how the, these injuries must have been so unusual for a village cottage hospital to oversee. You know, the speed limit was only 20 miles an hour, whereas around here you could be going around 100 miles an hour. And his son said he was seeing, he was seeing motorcycle injuries every two weeks, uh, which is quite a lot. Um, and the work they obviously did, he was put on to a guy called Mr. Moss of Bethnal Green. Well, it turned out Mr. Moss was the guy who made, uh, well, a big manufacturer of police helmets. And, of course, police helmets are extremely hard helmets, and, but relatively light. And the, the spec was basically about, it had to be stiff enough to withstand a very heavy blow and smooth enough to glance off a, a surface and shouldn't have any projections, which means no visors or badges or anything like that. Uh, so that basically the head could just sort of roll along. And that paper I showed from the Gazette there, that's, that's the only thing I've come across which diagrammatically shows a kind of cutaway of uh, the helmet there. Now, um, this is from 1924, and that's got a visor. I'm pretty certain he, well, it says it's detachable. <laughs> But uh, he certainly wouldn't have approved of that at all. But you can see the principle here that um, you had this very, very hard shell. And, of course, it's almost conical. Well, you know, it's, it's like an egg, isn't it? And uh, you had a very tight lacing. So it's, there's a, a leather inner and all linked to the strap and going on the chin. So it was very, very tight on the head, basically. Um. And um, it was only after World War I they became compulsory. Um, all, racing, all motorcycle racing had to, had to wear a helmet after 1920. And uh, Gardner says that um, 16 years afterwards, he only had two hospital cases, which is incredible since he was seeing two a week beforehand. Um, and they became known, and if you're of a certain age, certainly I am, uh, people used to refer to helmets as skid lids. And it was because he realised you wanted the head to skid along. Um, and almost certainly, from the way the comment was made by his son in his biography, um, they probably wished he patented it so that... <laughs> He'd got something out of it, but I, I'm pretty certain he wasn't interested in monetary uh, wealth or anything. Um, and just about the Auto Cycle Union, um, they, um, because of the work that was done by him, and they, um, and because in 1913 there'd been a, uh, somebody had died at, uh, at the senior TT races, um, they, they, they decided to force all the riders, made it compulsory to wear a helmet. And they took 94 helmets made by this Mr. Moss to the Isle of Man. And um, they eventually made them compulsory in 1922. And you can read the comment there from the, uh, the, the, the medical officer 
in, uh, in the Isle of Man uh, to Eric Gardner. He wrote to him and, uh, and um, called them your damned helmets because it had done him out of an interesting <laughs> medical observation of people who'd got head, head injuries. Um, right, so, much to my absolute amazement, I went along to the auto jumble here in July 2016, after I'd done this sort of research, and I saw this table, and I was absolutely gobsmacked to see this thing here, because I am pretty certain that's a, a totally original helmet, and I inspected it and things, and I said to the guy, did he know anything about it? And he hadn't a clue. And it was chalked on it, two, zero, and I couldn't make out the rest of it. And I, th I thought it was 20 pound, and I was going to say, I'll buy it. <laughs> In fact, I'd have given it to the museum, probably. But he said, no, no, it's 200. <laughs> so um, uh, I declined to pay 200 for it. But I'm pretty certain that's an original one. And what's interesting, the museum doesn't have I mean, the, the, the museum's got nothing about this at all. It's quite surprising, almost. Uh, it has got some helmets, if you go around. Uh, uh, at least one of them looks quite like that, but it was a, a 19 th late 1930s one. Um, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that's an original helmet. But um, just to continue the story, which is not to do with Eric... Well, it links into him later, but the story of helmets for motorcyclists is um, centers around Lawrence of Arabia and a very, very eminent neurosurgeon called Sir Hugh Cairns. Um, probably most of you know Lawrence of Arabia. It was very, I mean, in the 1930s, well, after the First World War, I mean, he was a massively well-known kind of celebrity type person. He was a, he was a serving RAF officer most of the time. And he loved riding his Bruff Superior SS100 motorbike. And um, unfortunately, in uh, 1935, he crashed it, um, not on, not on uh, duty or anything. He crashed it, and uh, he had terrible head injuries, and he died six days later. And Cairns was probably the most eminent, if you like, brain surgeon around at the time. And he went, uh, and you know, this was like a national figure who was injured, and he went down there, and um, he was so moved by, you know, this eminent, per this person uh, dying of these head injuries, he decided to start investigating it himself. Now, later on, I'll show you something where, in fact, Sam Beer reckons that they used to call him in occasionally, uh, for patients uh, at Weybridge, but um, that's, that's, that wasn't very obvious. Um, but he was an advisor to the government, um, and it was through, because of his research that the military introduced helmets in 1941 for anybody uh, riding a motorbike. And apparently, before then, in the first two years of the war, Second World War, over 2,000 riders died through head injury. Well, not, not no, they, they died having uh, accidents on motorcycles, and the vast majority with head injuries. Um, astonishing. 
And, and of course, it took another 32 years till 1973 till they were made compulsory for all riders, which is quite incredible, really, when you, when you think about it. And there's a lot of us here probably remember 1973 quite well. But, um, and the final, the final take on the whole thing was that uh, in 1941, this Professor Keynes, he wrote this um, learned paper in the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, uh, which is called Head Injuries in Motorcyclists. And it was obviously a big article. And um, Eric Gardner decided to write a very long letter to the <laughs> in response to it. And, and it's, it's there and that. Um, and um, he goes into great detail. And he basically explained that 27 years earlier, he had worked out all this stuff <laughs> about what, what was a good helmet design. And um, he didn't actually think that Cairns had properly taken it all into account, was the sort of <laughs> the summary of it, uh, which is really quite interesting. So uh, it's a very, very interesting read, actually. Um, if anybody wants it, I've got it, I've got it as a Word document these days. So um, this is a picture. This is the only picture of Eric um, at the track. And um, as you can see, he's with two other gentlemen who were almost certainly track officials, uh, this one being policemen. Uh, I had a discussion about Tim, <laughs> what he might be as a rank and that, we don't know. And this is almost certainly somebody else who's a track official, and I, I suspect that's late 20s, early 30s, just, just because of the hats and things. But, um, but you can see he was obviously um, very elegantly dressed when he was there and that, with his gloves and everything and uh, so he wouldn't have been doing any kind of hands-on medical work while he was there I don't think. So just a few words about Dr. Sam Beer and um, say a few things later as well but he uh, became um, the most well-known surgeon in the area and um, from uh, he actually started assisting uh, Eric Gardner from 1922 onwards uh, and it's pretty clear he eventually probably took most of the workload, and particularly after um, Eric stopped being the, the, the medical officer, uh, he was the major sur surgeon in the area and dealt with all the difficult uh, Brooklyn's cases, almost certainly. And he, he's obviously a much more sort of jolly character. Um, the, uh, the picture there is when he had just left Buckingham Palace because he was awarded um, an OBE military for his war service in the World War I. And that's a picture of him probably in the 50s, uh, around his, when he retired. Um, and they worked on, uh, as I say, various crashes. Now, um, this is uh, a very well-known one, and this um, car is very well-known because if you walk around the museum, you have seen that every time you walk around the cars. And that's Lord Ridley's Ridley special car, and he had, and it's oh it's oh it's got it's the we're obscuring um, the pictures are obscuring some of the text there, but they, he had a very spectacular crash in it, completely smashed up the car, and um, was taken into Weybridge Hospital, and then in his memoirs, he uh, you can probably read that um, about how he. Uh, ploughed through corrugated iron fence down a bank into a wood 
Um, I was concussed, and a branch of a tree went through my leg, you know, and uh, taken to Weybridge Hospital there for two months, and uh, basically Dr. Gardner saved his leg because he thought it was going to be cut off. Um, so, quite something. He was obviously very pleased about this. Um, and then another accident, um, Sammy Davis was a very, very well-known driver, uh, also in 1931, and his car slipped down the banking, um, just coming off the members' banking, slipped down, and he fell out, and the car landed on top of him, and it, uh, it smashed his femur, his thigh bone, up in a number of places. Very, very severe injury. And um, he wrote... Um, uh, I think he had a column, actually, an auto car, and he, he wrote afterwards, as you can read there, if, if he had been a racing car, he would now bear a, a brass plate stating that it had been reconstructed by Bear and Gardner. So, um, so it's really quite significant what these guys did, and, and people obviously realise, you know, what an amazing job it was that they did. So... Um, I'm afraid we've got to put most of the uh, Brooklyn stuff behind us and go back to some of the other things that he did. And um, there again, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't very busy, was he, uh, before World War I, just going backwards, but uh, he was a big mainstay of the Surrey Archaeological Society um, and eventually became a vice president. He was a member probably for years and he was the honorary local secretary for Weybridge. And every single town in uh, Surrey had a, a local representative. And it will come on and cover some of the things he, does, he did. Um, but there's other things there, like Oatlands Palace he did. And, um, but j just to put this into context, how big archaeology was locally in Surrey, um, the society still exists today. And just, if you just look at the people involved here, the Lord Lieutenant of Surrey was the president, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Duke of Northumberland, two earls, um, and eventually right down the bottom, they're the Lord Chief Justice of England. <laughs> um, so, uh, it, it, it's just quite amazing, actually, how, uh, how big, it, and it started in the Victorian times, you know, people were digging up all over the place. So his most notable thing that Eric did was he went and excavated St. George's Hill. So he goes straight up there and up the hill, and over the road, up the hill. Um, you'd come to this camp, um, uh, which was known about. And um, what you've got to understand is that in, um, up until 1911, anybody could walk on St. George's Hill. Uh, it was privately owned, uh, owned by Mr. Edgerton, and uh, you could just go, there's paths all over it, you go up there, and, uh, but eventually Edgerton sold it to, um, I think it's George Tarrant, who built all the first houses and set up the um, St. George's Hill Golf Club and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Eric went and did an excavation in 1910. He published a report uh, in 1911. It got some publicity, in particular, uh, an article in the Spectator, so it's sort of, uh, and it's almost certainly because um, there was, a, it wasn't 100% clear uh, what the origins of the camp were, and this is, that's a picture out of his report, and you can see the track, he just mentions the track there, and the camp's up here, and um, 
some of these are contours, but he also worked out that there were paths down from St. George's Hill because he, he worked out that they, there was iron ore on um, St. George's Hill and that was transported down to where it was smelted by some of the paths. Um, yes, it should, yes the, it should say camp there, but <laughs> it's hidden. Um, this, is a, this is an extract from the 1914... Um, Ordnance Survey map, and probably why the interest was, because the map there says it's a British camp occupied by Caesar before he crossed the Thames at Cowie uh, Stakes, which of course is Cowie Sale by Walton Bridge today, and um, this is what people thought, and that's a massive area. Uh, put that into context, there are 12 mansions today cover that area. Um, and the only building at the time on St. George's Hill was the Swiss Cottage Tea Room. And uh, this was an incredibly well-known place because at weekends, people would walk from Weybridge all over St. George's Hill and go and have tea in the tea room. Um, and so, and they'd also look at the camp, presumably, while they were there. They're sort of ramparts and things. And apparently uh, Elmbridge Council own a very tiny bit of it, but most of it is in the gardens of mansions up there. So. Um, he was also very well known for what he did at Chertsey as well. And uh, what you see here is that's a poster advertising a talk he gave uh, to raise funds for building the new hospital and uh, called the Romance Tiles of Chertsey Abbey. Um, and it was a lantern lecture. Um, which quite significant in those days, you know, because he actually, he actually was able to show slides of, or pictures uh, via some, what they called a lantern. Um, and he obviously um, didn't really write this up as a paper or anything because his son, uh, this bottom bit here, uh, is in reference to his son with somebody else uh, in 1954 wrote it up uh, based on his work. Um, he also did other things. He wrote a, a paper about prehistoric and Saxon antiquities found around Weybridge. And on the right there is a load of pictures of stuff. They're all found um, uh, around the bridge, the old Weybridge, basically, all those things. Um, and he wrote other stuff, apparently. I, I, won't, I don't know the detail or anything. But, um, but the, one of the significant things, and I, I, I put it in here as well, because um, it's, 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 on, it's in the Brooklands estate, and um, he worked out that um, on this bit of the farm, Brooklands farm, which is north of the racetrack, um, this is where smelting had gone, gone on. And what's significant there again and, uh, is that uh, there's a bit of land there, which, and there's a 50-foot contour, and this bit of land clearly doesn't flood. Um, and because of it being not, not like the museum here, which of course we all know does flood, or has a tendency to. And um, he, he worked out that iron smelting had gone on on this bit of land here. And it's, right, it's the closest point to the river uh, which doesn't flood. There's, there's, there's nowhere closer when you look at it. Uh, and he, he discovered this, of course, is the racetrack here, Riverway going under there. And um, later on, um, 
years and years later. In fact, I think in the, in the middle of the 1960s, people looked at it, and uh, eventually a proper archaeological dig was done in the 19, over 1970 and 1971, uh, what at the time was the playground for a lot of the kids who lived in the Lock King estate. And um, so they dug it up, and you, you can see, of course, this is actually part of a working farm. That, uh, that's, uh, that's harvesting a crop there. You can see the... Um, but this was the fields that were cut off when they, uh, the railway um, uh, you know, cut, cut off these fields from the, uh, the rest of the farm. And of course, oh, wrong, wrong. I pressed the wrong button, Tim, so... Oh, well, that's it, I'm okay. Um, of course, today it's the sewage works. And that's why they had to rush to do an excavation, because Surrey County Council uh, bought the site to put a, a new uh, sewage works on. And uh, so you can't go and see it anymore. So. <laughs> and there's a whole report, um, massive detailed report about the things they found. And in particular, in medieval times, there was a, a, a large medieval house there. And that must have been one of the, only, one of the earliest settlements in the area. Um, so, let's come on to uh, Eric and World War I, because he was quite busy in World War I. Um, and, um, of course, big things happened here at Brooklands in World War I. And he, um, probably, almost certainly, because of this thing that he was good at assessing people, um, <clears throat> and they, the RFC, the Royal Flying Corps, um, wanted... Uh, you know, to recruit and train an awful lot of uh, new pilots. And uh, he was involved in developing means for selecting and assessing, uh, and this is from his son again, medical and psychological fitness and suitability uh, of candidates. And um, the, um, he was also, though, at the same time, the medical officer for uh, what was known as the Red Cross, the Red Cross lo local committee, and there was a, what is known as a rest station at, at Weybridge. I've no idea where it was, um, but he was also a medical officer for two auxiliary hospitals, which was Brooklyn's House one and Cain's Hill House. Of course, both of those owned by the Lock Kings, their own actual house at Brooklyn's House. And many of you will know that Ethel Lock King ran over 20 of these auxiliary hospitals in Surrey, and that's why she was made a dame after the war. Uh, and there again, of course, he knew her incredibly well. And, um, but he got eventually called up for service in uh, 1917 to the uh, Royal Army Medical Corps, and he went to Macedonia, where the British Army were aiding Serbs against Germany. And he was a lieutenant and got promoted eventually and mentioned in dispatches. And apparently he didn't come back after the uh, uh, war ended in 1918. He had to stay on and he was involved with some ambulance train, presumably taking injured soldiers um, somewhere or other. Back, in fact, Baku's quite a long way away, isn't it, when you think about it? But, but back to uh, Brooklyn's here. Um, the, um, I, I didn't know all the detail here, but basically uh, Lock King uh, just gave the War Department the whole of Brooklyn's, handed it over to them. They obviously had powers to, to take things over anyway, 
Um, there were at least four flying schools in Brooklyn. It was by far the largest uh, centre for training pilots in the whole country. Um, and um, the War Department took it over. They took over all the buildings, all the aircraft, all the pilots. And um, they formed a thing called the Military Training School out of the Bristol Vickers and the Sopwith Flying Schools. And um, it was well recorded that um, there were very few deaths <laughs> resulting, uh, well, over this period, basically, and almost certainly because of the quality of the training and probably uh, affected as well by the fact that, uh, you know, they'd screened the, p the potential pilots in terms of their suitability. So, um, I think, I'm, yes, no, that's right. So, um, right, so we're whipping to North Greece now. I hadn't a clue that uh, the British Army was fighting in Greece uh, in the First World War, you know, such a concentration on uh, Belgium and France. Um, but uh, it was called the Salonika Campaign, and uh, they were in northern Greece there. Thessalonica is the, you know, I think it's the second city um, in Greece. And uh, where they were fighting uh, was a place for Amphipopolis, or whatever it is, and um, this is an ancient, archaic, um, Hellenistic Greek cemetery. And it's over a vast acre, uh, area. I mean, I mean, probably miles and miles of it. And I've seen things like this in Turkey. Um, and they were in the, this whole area and being shelled. And uh, lots of shells um, hit tombs, split tombs open. And the picture on there is uh, some British soldiers holding up skill, skulls that had got out of uh, broken tombs. But um, when Eric was there, uh, being the good archaeologist he was, he actually came across things, quite valuable ob objects. And instead, you can, you can kind of reason why this happened. He thought, well, it's just crazy leaving this. We're in a war zone, you know. It's just this stuff littered around. I, I better take them, <laughs> take them away. And he eventually brought them home and gave them to the British Museum. Um, and much to my amazement, when I was researching this, um, there was a, a mini Elgin marbles thing came up in um, October 2014 because... Um, some people in Greece um, are demanding that the British Museum gave back all these things that he took. And, and uh, down here, they, uh, they had to issue a public letter about the situation, uh, and they actually didn't think that the things he took were to do with... because it was currently then being excavated. Um, in, in a big way, and it has been over many years. And they were basically saying, these aren't... Uh, appropriate things in relation to what you're currently doing. So um, that was quite interesting. And there's a, there's some pictures of the things he brought back, uh, and uh, you can read what they are, and you can go and see them in the British Museum. Well, they're, they're there somewhere. Anyway. Um, right, back to hospitals, medical things. So uh, there's a picture of uh, the Cottage Hospital in Weybridge, and that's a picture in 1912. Um, building's still there today. It's actually been extensively modified. It doesn't have this lovely canopied entrance off Balfour Road. And that's it there on the map. You can see it on the map there. And, um, 
you know, you could almost say that Eric almost worked on the job because his house is about 50 yards away, so he'd just come out of his house, turn right, and he'd go to the hospital. Uh, and when the new hospital was built, he had to turn left and walk about 150 yards to go to the new one. So, so he would have been a very well-known person in Weybridge because it was quite significant where he lived. People would have seen him all the time. Uh, and uh, probably in the hospital, they, uh, they, they, uh, they could go and send somebody to knock on his door and call him out when they needed to. So, I mean, Weybridge was growing. Lots more people living here. It became a very desirable place to live. Back in about 1860, there was only 1,600 people, I think, in Weybridge. I think by about 1907, there was about 6,000 people. Um, and the uh, old cottage hospital couldn't cope. So a decision was made in 1923 to find a site for a new hospital. Uh, a building committee was set up. Uh, in those days, um, things like this were all funded by public subscription. There was no health service. Uh, local communities got themselves together, set up, a, if you like, a charity these days, trustees and things, and started um, seeking funds. And um, Eric became the uh, chairman of the building committee. That was the one that was uh, responsible for trying to raise money and look for a site. And uh, I don't want to go into all the details, but uh, just you saw on the previous slide on that map, um, the, there was a site uh, which was Vigo House. It was owned by Hugh King. And in fact, Eric had already had uh, stuff from the auxiliary hospital at Brooklyn's house moved down there um, after requesting that of Lock King. So he went to talk to him about um, could they have the Vigo House site uh, for a new hospital, and Hugh King said, you can have it for nothing. Um, and um, uh, this is very interesting because even today people know that the hospital site, most of you are local probably know the hospital that was there that burnt down in, 19, sorry, in 2017. Um, many, many people understand that the, the land, the site was gifted uh, for a hospital. The reality is that when the NHS came into being it took over all existing hospitals and therefore the site is owned by the NHS, actually. But, um, so uh, the building was completed in 1927. It was opened by Princess Beatrice, the last of uh, Queen Victoria's daughters. Um, and it was a huge event in Weybridge. Um, and when it was, after it was opened, uh, Eric was on the Board of Governors and he was chairman of the Contributory Scheme uh, right up until 1948. That, that, that was the scheme where a lot of people effectively insured themselves by making a, a weekly contribution so that if they needed hospital care, it would be paid for. Um, and that's a picture of Vigo House at the time with a great big board there. Please help. Um, so that's 1927. And um, there's lots of pictures around of the opening of the hospital. And I put this one in purely because is that, is that Eric Gardner? You know, he was a tall bloke, and you could see he held himself very well, much better than I do. Uh, I, I do what, he must have been there. He was such a significant person in terms of the building, the thing. But, of course, the world and his wife was there that day. This is, this is Princess Beatrice there, quite an old lady at the time. And um, 
Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I've got other pictures. I mean, it was a huge crowd. It must have been one of the biggest things that happened in Weybridge. Uh, uh, that was a picture of it very early on. And, um, and how, how did it play a role? Well, I've, I've obviously talked about um, the Cottage Hospital and people being taken down there. Um, as uh, Brooklyn's built up, and, and particularly in the 30s, um, and uh, they actually started to have an ambulance. And the first one they got uh, was a Ford Model T-based one, which is that picture up there. And later on, they got a Buick one, that picture down there. And so every race day, um, they had to have, the ambulance had to be on standby with a driver, and of course, doctors had to be on call as well. Um, uh, so it's quite significant, and when you think this is kind of like every other weekend from April through to October, uh, they had to be available, you know, racing up to the track. Um, and, you know, he took all these early cases, and I've said about Sambir uh, assisting him as well very much. And um, in the, uh, the, there's a booklet about the history of the hospital uh, which uh, said that these uh, drivers were a bit difficult. They thought they were lords of creation. And in fact, Sam Beer also says that um, um, a, a, a lot of their mates came in and tried to interfere with the treatment they were being <laughs> having. And uh, this, you know, it made a lot of difficulties. They, they weren't just typical patients, basically. Uh, but they, they had a very stern matron who uh, sorted them out. So. Um, and this is, um, I mentioned about Sam Beer and that. When he was retired, in, he, he retired in the late 50s. Um, he, um, it was the 60th anniversary of Brooklyn's and uh, there was a magazine called Old Motor, and they did uh, the June edition. was all basically about Brooklyn's, and they had this article about the track surgeon, which was based on an, in an interview with him, and he told them all sorts of things, um, and he told them about how he, about his own motorbikes and cars, and he talked about some of the major accidents, uh, and he talked about how he knew a lot of these big-time racers who were, you know, real kind of celebrities in those days because uh, he dealt with them and, you know, met them on the track, had them in the hospital, da-da-da-da-da, you know. Uh, so really quite interesting stuff. Um, so, 1936, um, Eric decided to give up all this medical stuff, um, living bodies, and go to, um, <laughs> go on to uh, looking into dead bodies, basically. Um, and he got a, the role of the pathologist for the Surrey coroner, and um, uh, one of the first things, he, he, when his son wrote about this, he was horrified to find that when he, he came, he, was, he had to do an autopsy, a post-mortem, that um, the uh, technicians had already started cutting open the bodies. <laughs> and uh, he was just thought this was appalling, and he had to stop it. Um, and you've all watched, you know, CSI or whatever, and uh, things on the TV, so you've seen lots of... <laughs> these things. Uh, every, every single post-mortem he did is written up and is in the Surrey History Centre in uh, Woking, actually. Uh, and he, he, he became very eminent as a pathologist. It's very clear. I mean, the, the opening thing of his obituary, uh, you know, was from this uh, society of pathologists, uh, forensic ones. And he, he worked with uh, this guy called Professor Keith Simpson, who was very, very uh, esteemed uh, 
pathologist himself, and also with Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who was a top home office pathologist, you know, who was obviously brought in for very significant events. Um, and of course, the big thing was murders. And I think what you've got to understand is that although murders get reported today, the press really loved murders, you know, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. They were big things. And, um, uh, and a number of the murder cases that Eric dealt with were written up, basically. So um, this Simpson guy, he had a secretary, and um, uh, he, he decided to take her out. Um, she used to write up all these reports, and he decided to take her out um, to um, witness some uh, post-mortems. The first one she went to was in Weybridge, Miss Salmon, who lived at the Nook, Weybridge, wherever that was, um, killed by a drunken lodger. And uh, Eric was working on it, and he got Simpson, Simpson in on it. And um, the most notable thing, she says, you can read it there, about how the mortuary was surrounded by great scarlet dahlias and drowsy September bees. So, but the book, she wrote this whole book, that was the first murder in it, and um, it was made into a TV series. But, um, uh, another book that came out was um, Foul Deeds and Suspicious Deaths in Guildford, and uh, one of the big ones in there was The Wigwam, Wigwam Girl, The Brutal Death of Joan Pearl Wolfe, and um, this was a big, big one for Eric, and uh, there again he had Simpson involved in it, um, and um, a body was discovered on an army training ground. And that's a, that's a picture out of the book, and I have no idea if you can identify anything in that pile of whatever. <laughs> but but th this th this was one of these thing. This was one of the ones that was followed very much by the press, and uh, you know, eventually they worked out what had happened, basically, uh, very much with um, uh, you know the skills of Eric involved. And then uh, the final one is the Chalk Pit Murder, a whole book written about this, really, really big national interest case in 1946. Uh, a body was in a, found in a chalk pit in Waldingham. The police just decided it was a suicide. Eric didn't think that was the case. It wasn't obvious to him. It was a, uh, a, a, and the police wanted to close it. And uh, his son said, he spent long hours in the chalk pit in, you know, all, all hours, all weather, without eating properly. Um, and he was vindicated. I mean, people didn't believe him. They, you know, they thought, no, you've just been stupid. And uh, he was vindicated because he did eventually prove that this body had been murdered and they, they found uh, the perpetrator. And, uh, you know, there was a trial at the Old Bailey. Um, but unfortunately, uh, that was the final major uh, activity in his career uh, because uh, it eventually left, uh, left him with tuberculosis and that's what killed him eventually. Um, but um, just another little amusing thing, I, 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 just, you know, I, I just love this. Um, you, can, you can read what it says there. That's, that's another letter to the British Medical Journal about dead bodies floating. And you can read what it says, but, um, uh, you know, he'd obviously seen an awful lot of bod bodies recovered from the Thames and the Way, and uh, everybody told him that uh, a woman 
after death floats face downward, but a man floats on his back. Um, so, um, uh, and in the letter there, it, it actually references ancient writing about it as well. But the very last thing about him is he was a map collector, um, and he um, uh, he, he uh, was renowned as uh, a collector of speed atlases. And John Speed was the English Mercator. He was the most famous. Um, cartographer we've ever had and there it was a world authority he owned a large collection he donated lots of them to uh, archaeological society and his finest one was uh, is in Cambridge University um, and before we get on to that though does anybody recognize that that Brooklyn's plan not a soul recognises that. Well, that's probably the oldest exhibit in this museum. And every day, hundreds of people walk by it. <laughs> and, uh, but no, nobody takes any notice of it. And um, that is a map which he owned, and he donated it to Weybridge Museum. And it's on permanent loan to the museum um, from Way uh, well, what is now Helmbridge Museum. Um, and that's the plan from 1803 when um, the Duke of York sold um, all his properties, including the Brooklyn's estate. And it's, it's got on there, it's got a key at the top with all these things that are marked on there. And I've just put on there, it's, it's quite significant because there was a, a what, was, what was called then Great Brooklyn's House, and that was on Members Hill. Um, and the Brooklyn's farm is on there as well. So um, he, he obviously he wrote loads of stuff about um, speed atlases and somebody else, he was, he was going to write a book about it, but he died before he could. And somebody else wrote it up as a book in 1970, basically. Um, and that's a picture of the, um, this very, very valuable um, map. Well, it's an atlas, and an atlas just means a set of maps. And it was the very first uh, atlas of all the British counties. And he had this early proof copy, um, which was hand-colored and um, was different than the first edition. And according to Cambridge University, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of their greatest treasures they have. It's, it's probably absolutely priceless. Um, and it's known as the Gardner copy. Um, but um, his one of his granddaughters told me that the two sons, after his death, um, uh, inherited all these, well, a whole load of these things, maps. And, um, but her mother got very, very annoyed with uh, her husband and his brother. And they were selling them off. And she said, you've got to keep some of these things. And they kept uh, four of them. And she eventually sold the last one in 2013, which is like a world atlas uh, from you know, 16, whatever it was. So um, there we are. He, as, as I said, he fell ill with tuberculosis. Um, he stayed in Switzerland, very common, of course. People who got TB left the country, went to Switzerland for the mountain air. He spent two sessions there. He wrote about Weybridge Hospital when he was there. And, uh, but eventually, he passed away in 1951. And he's buried just down the cemetery on Brooklyn's Lane, uh, as, as is his wife and very close to where um, all the Lock Kings are buried.
So that's it. So, uh, Lovely. Well, thank you, Steve. I'll put that down. <laughs> oh. Thank you. Well, I'm sure we've uh, learned a lot about Dr. Garner there and a lot about local history as well yeah. that some of us may not have known. So uh, certainly lots to think about there. Now, do we have any questions in the audience at all? Well, he's been quite extensive there, so he's covered quite a lot of stuff, I think. But if anyone else wants to know a little bit more, please wave your hand now, or we'll move straight on to the raffle. Or any corrections of anything, um, anything I've, you know, people have got different views of things, but. Uh... Okay, yeah, we do have one there. Let's move over. Paul. Okay. Um, the um, Elmbridge Museum used to be in the top of the library, didn't it? Yep. Uh, what's its status now? Well, it's effectively a virtual museum run out of um, the um, borough council offices in Isha. So, um, and they put on odd displays of things, but virtually most of it's online now. Well, they put on sort of online exhibitions and things. I mean, very recently, they've done a whole thing about high streets in Elbridge and lots of pictures of the high streets and things. But I remember there was the dugout I mean, log boat there and things like that. So yeah. they have well, I would, I would never have done this talk and my other talk if it hadn't been for the fact that I could just walk into the museum any day I liked and they got things out which they just had in filing cabinets which today they can't tell me they've got because they've asked them for a complete list of everything to do with Eric Gardner and given he was the honorary curator for the whole life of it <laughs> till he died and um, they can't find things that I read and, and, and in fact some of the things I had copied um, so mm. yeah it was a sad day when the museum moved out of there I think yeah. Still, some of the stuff came and, here as well. And they got rid of, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, just because of coming here, they used to, there's a big book about um, motorcycling in Brooklyn, which I, name escapes me, and they used to have a copy of it, so I went to try and get it, and they reorganised the library about two or three years ago, and they got rid of a load of these old books. Mm. You know, it used to be a reference book, and it's all gone. And, it, you know, it's worth 50 quid. Yeah. And they just, obviously, just got rid of it. <laughs> yeah, great shame. Um, okay, any more questions before we move along? So, have a good Easter, everyone, and thank you very much. And thank you very much to Steve McCarthy again for tonight's talk. Thank you.